0: All right, good morning. My name is Dwight, I'm one of the pastors here at Church Twenty One. What a great privilege it is. Uh I love these days. Kids, have a great time. I wish I was going with you. It'd be so fun. All right, have a great time. Uh I love these days where we get to all be together. Uh but it but it's not doesn't feel real in a sense. Because we all come from our local expressions where it's smaller and we get to know people and you can almost kind of talk to everyone that was there that, that morning or afternoon. And, and then we come together into this larger thing. And I know the temptation is like, oh, I don't know if I want to drive downtown and starting in a few weeks. You're going to have to pay for parking unless that gets, that's yeah, something to pray about, right? Maybe we wouldn't have to pray for parking on, on Sunday mornings. But there's so many reasons not to come here. And and I'm just so thankful that you are here. Thankful that uh, we get to see. It's a a little taste of what actually is going on in our one church and yet four congregations. And the way that we're set up kind of represents in a very small scale what's going on around the globe. Because the church is a global body that gathers together in very local expressions to contextualize the gospel for their specific places. Which is why I love the video that we saw earlier. And, and maybe the subtitles were a little too small or maybe the accents were difficult, but we're in Montreal, come on, we got all the accents. You should know the accents by now. Um, and the difficulty is part of the beauty that we're united not because we all speak the same way or have the same color skin or come from the same background but because of Jesus. He's the one that we're all rallied around. And so it's a beautiful thing for us to get to remember as we come together for these all-church gatherings, but also on this day, which is Church Planning Sunday, we're part of Acts 29. You're like, what's up with all the numbers? I don't know. Don't worry about it, okay? We're Church 21. We're part of Acts 29. And if you're like, I love that chapter in the Bible, it's not there, okay? There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. It wasn't a heretic that set up this organization. The idea is that the church history as what we know in scripture is it stops in acts 28 and then we keep going the church keeps going we don't stop and so the church is continuing to move which is why acts 29 um acts 29 plants churches worldwide i get the privilege of getting to be the the national director here in canada so i get to see all kinds of things happening from st john's newfoundland to um Whitehorse in the yukon and everything in between and canada is really really big really big, and there's not a lot of people, so lots of travel. Um, let me pray, and then we'll get into what we're gonna look at today. Jesus, thank you that your church really is all about you. Help us to be all about you today. We're gonna get into an interesting passage that um, hopefully brings deep encouragement, but also I know will bring conviction. It brought lots of conviction to me over the past uh, few weeks thinking about this, and I pray that we would respond with, with hearts full of everything we have in in you, Jesus, that we wouldn't be here this morning uh, lacking anything. I, I pray for those who are here that don't yet know you, Jesus, that today would be a day that they don't just hear more about you and know more knowledge about you, but rather they know you. They enter into a real relationship with you. Thank you for Church 21. Thank you for the people who make it up. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do something unique and interesting in our midst this morning. Would you elevate Jesus above everything else that we're coming into this morning with? We love you and need you. Amen. All right, so church planning is not a new thing. It's not new. It was all over the book of Acts. Paul was really involved in it. Acts is a book in the New Testament. It's not a deodorant spray. It is that, but this is a better ax. It goes on for eternity. Your ax wears off. Maybe you need to put more on. You ask your neighbor, they'll tell you. But um, no, don't focus on what's happening, okay? Um, the focus that we're gonna look at this morning goes back into 55, 56 AD, so we're going back about 2,000 years, and what's happening is that in Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, rose and ascended, there's persecution happening on this new, newly formed group of people called the church. They refer to it as "the Way" at that point, but the church. There's persecution happening because people don't like the message of Jesus. And Paul knows that, that people are experiencing hardships because of Jesus, and so he starts this collection to take care of some of the, the difficulties that are happening in Jerusalem with the saints. Saint isn't To be a saint isn't something that happens to you after you die, and maybe they name a street after you in Montreal, because that's all, we're not very creative here, right? We just name them after saints. But to be a saint is to be a follower of Jesus. You already are a saint if you're a follower of Jesus. You may not feel like a saint, but it's not all about your feelings. It's about what he says is good, right, and True. And so Paul is taking up a collection from all of the different churches in the globe that he's connected to, which is all of them at that time that he knows about, so that he can alleviate some of the suffering that's going on in Jerusalem. So specifically, we're going to look at a letter from Paul to a church in Corinth, which was a city. It was a very cool, urban, hip, trendy city, much like Montreal, people were very educated, well off. Um, There wasn't, yes, there was suffering, of course. It happens everywhere. But people generally were okay. The thing about Corinth, though, by the way, we're going to go into a a study on 1 Corinthians starting in the fall of this year. So we'll get to a lot about Corinth. But the people were fixed on themselves. This isn't a a new thing in our day and age where people are are egocentric and self-centered. This was the church in Corinth as well. Paul actually planted this church. He was responsible for building up the core group and seeing it multiply. Paul could have gone back to the church and said, hey, I started this church. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to respond to him because he starts out that way. I started this church. There are great needs in Jerusalem. I want for you to give resources. Instead of appealing to them out of demand, which how often does that work when you demand things? Instead, he tells stories. He wants for them to have the privilege of not being distant of what's happening in the globe, but very much partnering with what's taking place, especially in the suffering regions. We get that opportunity as a church as well through Acts 29, and uh, we, we work with a denomination called ABAC, and so we get to partner with different works going on around the world, alleviating some suffering, but also contributing to the furtherance of the gospel. We get that privilege. And I don't know if you know that, but the, the dollars and cents that you put into the offering, um, we aren't sitting around as pastors smoking cigars, drinking expensive lattes, laughing it up, right? We're figuring out how we give more of it away because we want more people to know about Jesus. And we'll go without so that other people can know who he is. That's what we're about as Church 21. Maybe you've experienced that already. I don't think we have the best of everything. In fact, I think we put aside things in our budget that we don't have that we could have so that we can give more money toward the expansion of the gospel around the world. So Paul, bringing us back to the context, Paul goes to the church in Corinth, actually goes to them through a letter, would have taken a long time to get there. And he tells stories. And so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament. Bible's broken up into two big sections. Old Testament, before Jesus came. New Testament, his birth, life, death, resurrection. And then snippets of the first hundred years of church history, which we now have here. So 2 Corinthians was this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And he starts with a story about the Macedonian church. Now, this might not mean much to you, or it might mean something deeply to you. So I'll just share it. Uh, the Macedonian church would have been made up of the Philippian church. So you think of your Bibles, Philippians, 1 and Second Thessalonians, and also the Berean church, which those were the people who really, they would hear someone preach, and then they would go and like, study their, their scriptures to find out if what they were saying was actually true and accurate. And Paul shows what's actually going on in the Macedonian church to the church in Corinth. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. We want you to know the grace of God, this gift that's been given to them. And look at what this grace of God has done in chapter 8, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, you're like, grace of God? Severe test of affliction? That doesn't sound like they go together. Grace should be like Christmas time, presents, opening, extra, exciting. But instead, we see grace of God shows up in a massive way, and there's a severe test of affliction. This means that they were experiencing rock-bottom poverty. They were experiencing nothingness financially and economically. Why? Because they were being persecuted. Because they said, we will follow Jesus and we will not bow our knee to Caesar. They were being persecuted. They couldn't work in the trade guilds, which is our modern day union. So if you can't be part of the union, you can't work. And so they're off like making bead necklaces or something. I don't know what they're doing. Trying to make it in this world. They're experiencing this rock bottom poverty because of persecution. So you can imagine that Paul puts together a little video to go up and say, hey, They're experiencing persecution. Uh, Let's raise money for the Macedonian church and the Jerusalem church. But that's not what happens. Look at what takes place at the end of verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, here it is, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. They They didn't ask for help. They didn't say things are really bad here. Things are difficult here. They, they begged to give. Do you hear that? Out of their poverty, the checks weren't coming in anymore. There was no bank account. The banks closed their accounts. And it says of them in verse 4, Begging us earnestly, like grabbing onto their coats, begging them earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I've never had anyone beg me, hold on to my pant as I'm walking outside of the church, like, Pastor, how do I please give more? Maybe today is the first day that happens. I don't know. But they're insistent, let us take a part. And is saying, but you guys are poor. You have nothing. You have nothing, and they, they don't care. Because it's their joy Overflowing. What they have in Jesus, the new identity that they have, is overflowing into a wealth of generosity. And Paul says this in verse 5, in this, not as we expected. Paul said, I did not expect that. It's unusual that people in dire circumstances are saying, can you please tell us how we give more away? How do we give more away? We have a little bit extra. How do we ship that out? so that more people can know Jesus. Why did they give it away? Why did they give it all all away? It's not like they had a surplus. It's not like they had a savings account. It's not like they had an investment fund that they were just working off of the principal. It wasn't that. And they also weren't giving to get something. It's a beautiful thing that you can give to a nonprofit today and receive a tax receipt but I sometimes think that gets in the way of real generosity. I sometimes think that we give for the tax receipt, that we measure out precisely what's gonna, and I'm not saying don't be wise about this, but that we measure out precisely what's gonna give us the best rate on our taxes. And we give that much. That's not generous. If you're exacting precisely what you're gonna give every year based on government regulations and what they say is good, that's not biblical generosity. Just saying. They're not giving to get something. They're not giving to get something from God. Some of you give money. Some of us give money so that God would, would be gracious to us, that he would give us something that he would give us a job or the spouse or the house or the whatever it is that we want so we give thinking we can buy God's favor. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you couldn't buy it. You couldn't be good enough. You couldn't give enough money. You couldn't do enough right things and not do enough wrong things. So Jesus came to do it for you. They were giving because of what they already have in Jesus. Look at what it says in verse five. This, not as we expected, but they gave, and this is important. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And what happens when you give yourself to the Lord, it's not just that you give him a little piece of your heart or you give him this this little chunk of life. It's that you say, I'm in it for all of it, Jesus. You are now my Lord. We're gonna baptize people today and we'll ask them two questions. Is Jesus your rescuer? Did he rescue you from sin? And we'll talk about that in a bit. They'll say yes, yes. We've already asked them. We already know their answers, okay? There's not going to be a, you're sitting in there like, get out of the tub, sorry, right? But is Jesus your rescuer? And honestly, we like that idea of Jesus. We like the idea that Jesus would save us and rescue us. But the second question is, is Jesus king of your life? That means that he can ask anything of your life. He's in charge. You're no longer in charge. And this is a public declaration that I'm no longer in charge of my life. You don't get to generate your adventure with Jesus. It's up to him. He's the king of everything. And when you give yourself to the Lord, all is his. Everything is his. And it's always been his. It's just that you finally acknowledge that it's his. All of your money, his. I used to say when we were in the intense COVID period, even your mask is his. You wouldn't want to share that mask with anyone. It's like he's giving you that thing and This is not a political thing about mass. I'm diverting hard out of that because I don't want to go there for some of you. But all of it is his, which means that you have no lack. Today, you have no lack. You might feel like your bank account's running low. You don't know how you're going to make whatever meat. But in Christ, you actually have no lack. And you've been blessed. He's blessed you. Not so that you keep building up riches, Not so you keep building up. There's a story in the New Testament about a guy who builds a bigger barn for his stuff. And Jesus rebukes him for that. We're blessed in every way to bless other people. So we're given so that we can give it away. We have open hands. We receive it as stewards so that we can give it away. And generosity is one of the ways that we make the grace of God visible. Your generosity shows the grace of God is working. Because here's how grace works. God voluntarily, God voluntarily shows you grace, which we'll look at in just a second. He works that inside of his people so that it moves us and we respond voluntarily. This is what grace is. It's not an exacting, it's not a command. Paul's not commanding here. It's he wants to put the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper inside of his people so that they get to the point where they say, yeah, Jesus, everything is yours. How do we not fixate on ourselves? How do we not move in self-preservation? How do we not worship money and resources and power that we can get from it? But how do we live as servants of you? And so Paul says, okay, church at Corinth, I'm going to start with this Macedonian story. That's pretty moving. That's amazing. That's amazing but it's amazing because of the story of Jesus that's moving in that community. So let me read to you the story of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, verse eight. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. There it is, the proof. Remember, grace made visible. It's proof of your love. And here it is in verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus never had a beginning and will have no end. That we believe Jesus is fully God, yet he became fully man 2,000-ish years ago. And he came to give himself away. He came not because he needed more hugs or likes or followers on his social media. He came to give himself as a ransom for many. He came to intentionally lay down his life for other people. His generosity toward the world proved his love. No, There is no greater love than this, that someone would lay his life down for his friends, but Jesus also laid his life down for his enemies. At one point, every one of you in this room were an enemy of Jesus, And he died for you while you were still an enemy. And he rose from the grave while you were still an enemy so that you could become his friend, so that you could be brought into his family, so that you could be forgiven. Jesus voluntarily impoverished himself to make us rich in him. That's really good news. That's really good news. You are not lacking today. And as Jesus came, he didn't give his leftovers. He didn't give his extra. He gave himself completely. Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross watching for a tenth of his blood to drip out to be like, okay, that's it. I tithed my blood. I'm good. What does the government require of my blood? All right, I'm done. It's all over. He gave himself completely. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is your calling. Give yourself fully to the Lord. Not just pray a little prayer and everything will become better. It's give yourself completely to Him. Die to yourself and live in Him. Some of us trust money and resources way too much. They give the illusion that you're provided for. Our houses give the illusion that we're safe. I've told you about our house. Our house has all glass doors, and we put a little lock, you know, that's a little loose. We turn it at night, and I'm like, we're safe. Glass doors, it's an illusion to safety. We're not safe. We're not secure outside of Christ. Money and resources are a horrible God. They will turn on you every time and require you to keep getting more and more and more and more. They can't provide for you, but Jesus always will. This is what Paul is trying to tell the church in Corinth and what he's trying to tell us by means of this letter as well. And so trusting in Jesus, trusting in Jesus to be our provider frees us, frees us from the love and worship of money. And what giving does for our hearts is it reminds us as we let it go that I don't need this. I don't need this. Or I thought I needed this before, but this isn't primarily what I build my life around. And so giving is a constant reminder to our hearts that we don't need money. It's not our identity. So let me go into the story of Corinth. I'm gonna be pretty fast about these because I wanna give proper time for baptisms and everything today. But the story of Corinth, they started this collection a year ago before before this letter was written. In chapter eight, verse six, Paul writes, "'Accordingly, we urge Titus "'that as he had started, "'he should complete among you this act of grace.'" So the collection started, must finish. And then in verse seven, it goes on to say, but as you excel in everything. Okay, the church in Corinth was very gifted by God. They had a lot of stuff going on. They had lots of uh, gifts of the spirit, if that means anything to you, that was happening. They're like competing with one another, trying to be louder than one another in speaking in tongues and words of prophecy and all these things that were happening. And so he says, as you excel in everything, In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. It's really good that all those other things are happening, but don't forget that giving is needed. Giving is needed, and giving's hard. It's hard to give. It's hard to talk about giving because money takes such a a hold in our life. It's one of those conversations that we don't like having as Christians um, because we're just not sure how to talk about it. So I'm like, well, we have everyone together for a day. What are we going to talk about? I'm like, money. Perfect. This is where we're going with it. Because giving's hard. And Paul, what he does is he goes into practical mode to help them apply the gospel. He goes into practical mode to help them apply the gospel. Which is give from what we already have in Christ, not what we're going to earn. So I have seven things, and then we'll be done-ish. Okay, I'm gonna move pretty fast through this text. So the first thing is found in chapter eight, verse 11. So now finish doing it well. This is a collection. So now finish doing it well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So the first thing that Paul says is that when the gospel gets into your heart, it creates a new desire to actually give. Paul's not beating them with religion, you need to do this. He's saying if the gospel is actually moving in you, you're going to want to give. You're going to want to be generous. There's going to be a desire there. And this is hard to say, but I'll say it. If there's no desire, if there's no desire at all to be generous or to to give to others, you aren't connected to the gospel. If there's no desire to give, you're not connected to the gospel. And I'm not saying you're not a, a Christian. I'm saying you're not currently connected to the gospel. That's not the good news moving in you. You've moved on to some other gospel. Paul would say in the book of Galatians, who bewitched you? Who tricked you to believe that there's a better gospel than this one? If we're not generous, then then we're not connected to the gospel. It's one of those vital signs that you take. If you have no desire to be generous and to give it all, then your response is to pray. God, what's going on? What's happening in my heart? Where am I off? And ask him to work that out with you. It's not to beat yourself into submission in this area. It's, God, give me a generous heart. What am I missing? The second thing is found in uh, verse 14 and 15. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So their need in Jerusalem. So that their abundance may supply your need. That they, there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Here's the thing that Paul wants them to understand there. God gives for them to give. God gives to you for you to give. God gives to us for us to give. Billy Graham says this, God has given us two hands, one to receive and the other to give with. One to receive, one to give with. We're all stewards. We're all stewards. Saving is important. Investing is important. Making your money work is important. Providing for your family is important. That's very good, but it's not enough. Saving, investing, providing is not enough. My friend Ross Lester, in a very lengthy quote that I won't quote all of it, says, money is mission ammunition. Money is mission ammunition. That our resources go so that we can... Help get the gospel out in other places, whether it be through sending people, sending radios, printing literature, helping people get bikes to be able to trek through the jungle or ATVs or cars to be able to go through countries or to rent facilities or whatever it is. But money is mission ammunition. We're told by our society to worship money and what money can give. But God uses money to blow the gates of hell wide open. This is how we train our money. Money is not our master. We're not to be mastered by it. We make masters of money. We use money for the good things of God. Don't bury what God gives to you. When we take our money and we only think about ourselves, and this is bigger than money but our money and our resources, and and we only think about ourselves, it's like hoarding food during a food shortage and all your neighbors are starving and you're on like can three of 3,000 of your green beans. How much do you have to hate people that you wouldn't open up your food pantry? Say, well, I guess we're all going to die together, but at least we'll die with lots of green beans in our belly. It's like having a whole... I know this is Canadian, um, so it's not a very good analogy maybe, but it's having a whole basement full of ammo when there's a war in your neighborhood. Sitting on things that could be used. And the thing is that we forget because we're in a nice, comfy place like this. Oh, look at the lights. You know, our concerns this morning were, oh, the sound and lights. Those are our deepest concerns this morning. And we forget that we're really at war, that we're in a war for our souls and our worship. We're at war with lots of people who are worshiping other gods other than Jesus, and we're not fighting against them. Let me make that clear. We're not at war against people. Paul said that in Ephesians. But we're at war with with spiritual realities and false gods that want to puff themselves up and show how good they are. We're at war, but God gives for us to give. And it's not when you have a savings account that's really amazing that you begin to give You just start giving. You just start giving because you trust him. Third thing is in verse 12 of chapter eight. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Here's the principle. Give what you have. Give what you have. God is not asking for the stuff that you don't have. He's not looking for you to, to pay with us credit cards so that you go in debt so that the church is able to do certain things. That's not what he's saying. Give what you have. But don't give the leftovers. Don't give the leftovers. Don't move throughout your month and then pull your pockets out and you're like, well, I have a toonie. You know, let me flip a toonie. And you're like, oh, I'm kind of like that widow that went to the temple and like flipped in a coin. It's like, don't congratulate yourself like that. That woman wasn't searching in her pocket for the last thing that was there at the end of the day. She, She found the Lord and she was giving everything she had. It's not the leftovers. It's the first fruit. You know what I don't let the government do with my paycheck? I mean, I can't help it in one sense. But the government comes and I get to see, and it's staggering sometimes, right, how much money comes out right away. But I say, no, I'm not going to begin my giving with the number that Trudeau and Lego give me. I'm going to begin the giving with how much I made in the first place, and I'm going to work off of that because it's a first fruit type of giving. It's not what's what's left over when stuff's been taken out. It's, I want the first, most important money and resources to go to God. It's not leftover, it's first fruits. It's God before government. Always, always. We wanna work with the government. God gives the government to us as helps. Again, this could get political fast, and I'm not going there. But God before government. And if you're gonna be a giver, you're gonna to have to plan and budget for this. You're gonna to have to plan and budget so that you can worship out of generosity. And if you're here and you're not giving and you're part of Church 21, start with something, start somewhere. And it's not because we want to, um, you know, beat you into submission and show you bad numbers. Like we're doing pretty well financially. Really, really, we're doing very okay, and I'll get into that at the very end. But it will benefit you. It will benefit your heart. Because your heart gets to say no to money again as the God that you worship. And that, God, this is your, these are your resources, and I'm going to give. And I'll just say, um, there's nothing necessarily extremely biblical about this, but I think that, well, it kind of is, but some people take it too far. I think 10% is a really good starting point in terms of being generous. And some of you are like, whoa, 10%? Yeah, because it hurts. It hurts. It's like, what could I have done with that 10%? What could I have done with that? What could, what, what could I have moved? And, and what could I have purchased or bought or whatever it is? But I think it's a really good spot to start, and we grow from there. Theus Lewis said this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. That's what happens when the gospel takes root of our hearts. If you have a religious heart and you're like, oh, I'm exacting everything out, that's not going to be good news to you. But when the gospel breaks in and Jesus is in charge of everything, then this is the type of generosity that takes place. I'm going to keep going. I feel like I could, like, preach a whole sermon on each one of these points. But verse 13, Paul says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Give, here's the principle coming out of this gospel, give without comparison. Don't look around and be like, well, I wonder how much they're giving. Are they doing their part? Eh. Not for you to know. Doesn't matter. It's for you and Jesus. How, how do we do this? How is my family implicated in this? We give without in comparison, and we don't expect anything in, in return. We're never going to look at the little um, amount that you give and like, oh, my goodness, we need to put a plaque up somewhere, right? We don't even own a building, so where are we going to put the plaque? We'll, like, put it up and then take it down at the end of the day. We're not going to do that. You don't expect anything in return because you have everything you need in the gospel. And it's not for prosperity. There's a prosperity gospel out there that says, you know, we give so that we'll be blessed in abundance and be wealthy and be driving posh cars and have amazing cribs, not baby cribs, but really nice houses. And it's because I'm giving, I'm being generous, so God is being generous way back to me. That's not what Paul says. That's not his gospel. That's a false gospel. And if that's what you believe, you need to be careful and study, why do I believe that? The fifth thing is found in chapter 9, verse 6. You still with me? All right, all right, here we go. Verse 6 of chapter 9, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The amount that you sow and reap are connected. This is a pretty basic principle, isn't it? If you sow two flowers, uh, you're not going to have 4,000 flowers. You'd be an idiot to think that, right? That's not how it works. The amount that you sow and reap are connected. They really are. Jesus is inviting us in to invest his resources. Do you, do you remember the parable of talents? Where there's this master and he goes away to a far off country and he finds these three guys that is in charge of all of his stuff. And one, a talent is a ridiculous amount of money, Okay. It's like 20 years salary or something like that. One guy gives five talents. The next guy gives two talents. The other guy gives one talent. When the master comes back, the guy with five talents has doubled it. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. The guy who, who brought two talents doubled it. Now, any of you who understand economics, especially in this economy, you have to take pretty high risk to double your money. Right? To be willing to say, I'm going to take all of his money and put it in that high risk of an investment so it doubles when he comes back, you need to know that the master is gonna be pleased with you taking that risk, but also be honored because you took that risk for him. But the guy who takes his money and buries it and digs it back up when the master comes, he's like, hey, here's your money back. Uh, I knew that you were a harsh man and I didn't wanna lose any of it, so here you go. And he says, you wicked and foolish servant! You took what I gave to you and you buried it? I gave that for you to invest it, to make more with it. You didn't honor me at all. You didn't do with my stuff what I wanted you to do. Now depart from me. Harsh words. But the reason why Jesus is so frustrated about this mentality is because we don't trust God with our resources. When we act like that, listen to what A.W. Tozer said, any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Listen to that. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Whatever is touched by or whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Christ is going to do far better things with his resources given by you than questrate ever will or your bank ever will or the ether ever will. Right, All those things one day are going to fade away, but investment in Christ's kingdom is going to have immortal payback. For eternity, we'll be celebrating the things that were done because of the generosity of God to us and his people toward him. The sixth thing is that generosity produces things that otherwise wouldn't exist. Generosity produces things that otherwise wouldn't exist. Listen to um, chapter 9, verse 2. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal, here it is, your zeal has stirred up most of them. They heard that this gift from Corinth is coming, and they're pumped. They're excited. We're going to be able to eat. We're going to be able to take care of people. We're going to be able to support orphans and widows. We're going to be able to care for more people and send out more people so that the gospel is proclaimed. Your generosity sparked zeal. I've gone to, with our money, Church 21 money, I've gone to India, given Church 21 money to church planters in India who they're like, now we want to talk to our congregation about how we can be more generous so that we can help churches in Canada. I'm like, oh man, you know, you, you, you come to the point where you're like, we don't need your money in a sense. Like, not that we're perfect, but we don't need it but who am I to hinder like the Macedonian church wanted to give? They all of a sudden are saying, we want to help you. Because generosity produces zeal for generosity in other people. It's contagious. That's what the gospel does. Jesus, you've been so generous to us. How do I give everything away? How do I invest things in this life so that even after my wife and I are dead and gone, money and resources can keep going? Being given to church planning and church multiplication throughout the world, what happens is as we're generous, we cause other people to be thankful. you ever given money to someone, and uh, well, maybe this has happened. you've given money to them, and they've been like, "Oh gee, thanks, whatever." But it's often come where we've given money to someone, and they're like, "Oh my goodness, I'm so thankful, thank you, Lord, for this. It produces thanksgiving in people. It produces prayer. You know, the church in India as well says, hey, we can't give a lot, but we're praying for you. I get Facebook messages all the time at very inconvenient times from my Indian friends who tell me that they're praying for Church 21. Our generosity has spawned a prayer movement for us. It's amazing. Generosity causes for people to glorify God. Generosity causes global connection and longing to be with one another. Your generosity produces things that don't exist otherwise. It's amazing. The last thing is in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 10. He who supplies seed, being God, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. There's no condition here. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God will provide for his mission because he said he will. God's not going to be infuriated with you over your generosity. I can't believe you gave too much. You messed this up. God actually said in the book of Malachi because they were being stingy He says, why don't you bring, why don't you test me? Why don't you bring the fullness of the tithe back then, bring the fullness of the tithe in and see if I don't open the storehouses of heaven for you. Like, test me. I'm generous to my mission, God says. And some of us don't give because we're afraid that he won't give more. But here's your promise. He will supply seed. He will provide ammunition for the gospel to get to go out. But he might not provide for your big screen TV. He might not provide for your vacation home. He might not provide for the type of retirement you want to have. He might not provide so that you're wearing the best clothes. He might not provide so that you get all of the fixings all the time. He might not provide in those ways, but he will provide everything for his mission. If you're reluctant, you're like, I don't know, verse seven and eight. Of chapter 9. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, Paul is going like overboard with all the alls, but it's true, you may abound in every good work. If you're stingy, look at his ability. Don't look at your bank account, don't wait for your raise. Don't look at what might come in. Um, I, I share this story not to prop my, my wife and I up, but because I learned something profound about giving. Uh, we raise support to be here. We still love, live off of half support, uh, we, a choice that we've made. And so Church 21 pays us a little bit. Acts for Nine pays us a little more. And then we raise funds to be able to do this. Well, we raised money during 2008 and 2009. Do you remember those years? Uh, economic downturn. And we're like, hey, can you give us some extra so we can move to Montreal and plant a church, right? Not great conversations all the time. And so I had to work a job. I couldn't get most jobs because they would ask me, so what's your long-term plan for this job? I'm like, Lord, can I lie now? Is that okay? I said, actually, as soon as we raise support, my wife and I are gonna move to Montreal and plant a church. You're like, ah, uh, we have no need of you. So I did this job that I barely made enough money uh, for rent, and groceries, and uh, actually, we couldn't even pay for our oil, and so our landlord paid for our oil to to heat our place. We had nothing. So I determined in my heart, quietly, this is a season where I'm not going to give to God. God has to be more generous to me, because I don't have enough. We don't have enough. I don't even think I brought that up with Jess. I think I just made that decision, as most new husbands do, make great decisions without consulting their wives, and I just said, like, I'll own this reality. She doesn't need to be stressed out. She's with child. We'll just do this. And so I made, this, I made this thing, we won't give. And then the conviction came, like, you need to give. I'm like, well, we don't have any money to give. And I won't tell you all the percentage stuff, but there was a very specific number that we were supposed to give. And I wrote checks to our church, Wyndham Baptist Church, and I put them in the offering every other week so we got paid every other week. And I said to Jess, hey, one week, um, the elders, the pastors are going to come to us and say, why are you bouncing checks? Because literally it was negative every single time. And I don't mean like negative three cents. It's like negative hundred, negative three hundred dollars. I'm like, well, here we go. We're gonna learn something. We have nothing to lose. Can't even afford our oil. Nothing to lose. And I would go and share at a church or something, and they would say, Hey, we can't support you, but here's a check for five hundred dollars. And I'm like, well, that's really helpful. Or someone would walk up to us after a, a church gathering. They're like, I don't know, I was praying and. Here's here's an envelope for you. They would give us $200 cash. I learned that God isn't waiting for me to feel like I have enough to give, but that in the midst of feeling poverty, that oh, I get His heart for giving. And not like our like three dollars was making a difference in our local church, but it isn't about our local church. It's about our relationship with God and how we steward His stuff. And so I want to encourage you: don't don't wait, don't wait. Respond to His gospel now, out of what He has given you in Jesus. You see, Jesus passes his resources through his people so that we get his heart for his kingdom, his mission, and his church. Do you get that? He uses us like conduits. He says, I'll give you this. What are you going to do with it? Do you want this more than you want me? Or are you going to steward this so that my kingdom, church, and mission go further through you? Does God need your money? No, absolutely not. If he needed money, he wouldn't ask you. He wouldn't ask us. He doesn't need it. But it's an opportunity for us to respond to him with the grace that he has shown us. So why would I preach this message? Seems like I'm a little out of touch with things. All Church 21 Gathering, Church Planning Sunday. Why preach this message? Well, I want to encourage you, first of all. You are a church that has so much gospel generosity. You really are. It's a delight to get to be one of the pastors of this church. You have so much gospel generosity, not just in the amount of resources that you give to the church, but the way that you're generous with one another in all shapes and beings. And so thank you. On behalf of the, the pastors, I just wanna say thank you. Uh, we have about 150 giving units, right? So not just individuals, but units representing families in a 400 person church. That's staggering in and of itself. It's Amazing. Our budget is $440,000 This is where I'm gonna talk about things that might cause you to check out, but don't. Our budget's about $440,000, which breaks down to $2,933 per giving unit per year. It's not a lot. But you're being faithful and generous. I see so much selflessness in so many of you. And it pleases me. It's a joy to get to pray for you and be part of this church. And, And you're not giving so that we get bigger stuff. You're giving knowing that we're going to focus on multiplication and reaching the not yet reach. We went from a nice theater all together, one church, into four church plants. We went from only having mild chaos, because we dialed it in after many years, to now having chaos every week in four places. It's Awesome. And you guys, you guys are like, let's do it. We love it. So that's Jesus working in you, right? Absolutely amazing. I got my front row up here clapping. I love the front row. Um, But this is Jesus at work in you. And you're growing into owning this. I've heard conversations. I haven't rebuked any of you. I wouldn't rebuke you. But I heard some of you talking about how I I miss being in our little little gathering this week. Beautiful. You're owning being the church. We get to be in global partnerships with people. And we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep doing this. There will probably never be a plan where we roll out like a 2,000-seat auditorium in downtown Montreal that we're going to build, the amount of logistics that requires just makes my mind feel bonkers as I'm thinking about it. try not to process it at this moment. Here's the challenge. There's so much need. There's so much need in our city. We live in one of the most unreached cities in the Western Hemisphere. And so the challenge is that we would actually lean into the gospel more and ask God to increase our generosity. How? Here's, here's the challenge to us. And, it, and if it doesn't happen, that's fine. It doesn't, it doesn't ultimately matter. We do with Jesus' resources, what he wants and what he provides. But those same 150 units that give, I would love to see those units move from giving 2,933 per year to giving... And here's the number, 5300 per year. Because if, if the number moves a little bit, if each giving unit were to give 2000 more, our, our budget wouldn't be $440,000. still not able to even afford all the things that, that we're doing. It would be $800,000. So that would be our budget. And it's like, well, good, maybe we'd have more than coffee. Maybe we'd have lattes. No, not getting lattes. Even if we get $800,000, even if we get a million, no lattes still. We're not doing that. Not doing it. What would it do? Well, number one, we'd be able to fully pay a pastor downtown, West Island, South Shore, and NDG. All of our locations would be paid for. We'd have no more raising support of people because a lot of guys are still living off of support raising. We'd be able to own that. And then at the end of the day, we'd have $210,000 left for what? Mission. Mission. A quarter of our budget would be for mission. That funds two church plants per year in our context. In India, that funds 25 church plants. We're going to fund a lot of church plants. And, and you might think, why are you so focused on church plants? Church plants represent people meeting Jesus. So where people begin meeting Jesus, a church forms around those people in that context. And so we want to be able to fund these things. And here's our vision as Church 21. We want to keep planting congregations of 50 to 200 people so that people can really be known and have a church congregation in their neighborhood. We're, we're planning, hopefully, in 2025 to have two more. And at this moment, I'm going out, and we as a team are going out to other churches to raise the money for this. And right now, I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if I'm supposed to mention this or not, but I'm just going to do it. Um, we have in an account for our future church plants $200,000. Whoa. That's what I was expecting. Um, some of you are thinking about the latte. You're still angry about that. But lots of good places to buy lattes around here. We, we have the funding for those two church plants for the first couple of years already done. Because of other churches being generous to us. Believing in what God is doing in this church. And I'm like, dang it, I want Church 21 to get a part of that too. I want for us to get to be generous toward what is happening here. I don't want those other churches just to get that. And so I want our part in seeing Montreal becoming the most reached city to actually become attainable. Wouldn't that be amazing to have church, church plants and churches all throughout the island of Montreal? And, and not ones that you're kind of like, mm, I'm not sure about that one. But ones that you're like, I, you're moving to that neighborhood, that's your new church. That's a solid place. You need to plug in and serve there. So let me end with this. I'm so encouraged. So encouraged by you as a church. People are meeting Jesus. This is, we're going to be at number 22 of people being baptized since July of last year. During a pregnancy period, 22 new people following Jesus. Like that's, that's exciting. That's exciting. This means that Moms and dads, some of you are taking discipleship really seriously and you're forging followers of Jesus within your home. And I applaud you in that, right? Some of you are taking the mission of Jesus to your neighbors and you're seeing your neighbors baptized today. And I applaud you for that. Some of you are seeing family members meet Jesus. This is why we do this. Right, We don't do this so that we're like, wow, look at how awesome we are. Look around the room. It's so amazing. It's because new people are meeting Jesus and the people we're getting dunked this morning are going to be around the throne room in heaven celebrating because you shared the gospel with them and the Holy Spirit opened their hearts so they could believe. That's why we give money. That's why we give time. That's why we rent buildings. That's why we support race. That's why we do all this so that every person in Montreal would know who Jesus is. This is what we're about. So, so we consider this. Give yourself to the Lord. Give yourself to the Lord today. And then what does he want to do with his resources? What does he want to do with his resources? And it's not just money. I know there's a sermon a lot about money, but it's, it's money, time, and calling. Are you open to what he wants? Is Jesus really your king? Because he's inviting you into the plan of rescuing the world. Your jobs matter. Your neighborhoods matter. Your hobbies matter. And is there something that needs to change? Because you're the ones doing the work of the ministry. It's the church. It's Church 21 doing the work of the ministry as you're going out into your normal everyday things. My role is to equip you for that. And we send you out to do that. So I'll end with a few questions. We're going to long today, and that's okay. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Last... We just do things and ask for forgiveness later, right? That's how it works. So is the Lord calling you to leave Montreal and go to the nations? Is the Lord calling you to take your life and uproot it and go to the nations intentionally? I want to pray for you if that's you. Is the Lord calling you to consider being involved in church planning? Well, good news, you already are. But maybe he's calling you to be involved in a different way. I'd love to pray with you we know that there's huge poverty in our city, but here's the good news is that Jesus has given his church all the resources necessary. Church 21, you lack nothing. We as a church lack nothing, and so let's give ourselves to him. Let him do what he wants, and it'll be way better than any plan that we can make. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to respond. Jesus, thank you that you're here. I pray for people who are wrestling with you. If they don't know you yet, would... Would they, would they see you and what you did for them at the cross in the resurrection and say, Jesus, I need you to save me and to be my king. I pray for those that you would call to go to the nations, that you would speak to them clearly about that and that, that we would have the opportunity to pray with them and, and to s- prepare them and send them. I pray for those who are, who are called to be a part of Church in a in a new way in this city, that we would equip them and train them and prepare them for that as well but I want to thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the way that you're working. We're not perfect, not even close, but yet you're working. We see your hand on people's lives and in the things that are happening. We get to celebrate what you're doing. We get to celebrate through baptisms today. You're rescuing people. We love you and we need you for everything. Amen.